The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash the Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code CANDIDFRAME at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. Today's guest is Maggie Stieber, a photojournalist and documentary photographer whose work has taken her to over 64 countries. For over three decades, she has covered major stories about war and disasters, but she's also told quieter, but no less important, human interest stories for wire services, magazines, and newspapers. She's probably most famous for her work in Haiti, a place that she has a special affinity for. Along with her personal work in the country, she also helped to facilitate the Miami Herald's coverage of the Haitian earthquake in 2010, which earned the paper a Pulitzer. Steber is a photojournalist who is unrelenting in her pursuit of telling stories that matter. It's her commitment and persistence that makes her one of the best. All right, well, Maggie, welcome, welcome to the Candid Frame. It's a real pleasure and a real honor to uh, to have you on the show. Oh, you're so kind to say that. Uh, yeah, I've been a great fan of your work for a very, very long time. And so uh, I was really excited uh, when Cynthia uh, let me know we were finally going to have you as a, as a guest. And there's so much that I, I, I can talk to you about with respect to your work. But I really wanted to find out more about you. Um, I knew you you grew up in a small town in Texas, Electric, Texas. I'm, and I want to kind of know what your life was like growing up there, because your your mom was a single mom. Your, your parents divorced when you were really, really young. And I wonder how that sort of shaped you and made you that the person that you were, because there's, when I look at your work, I, 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 I feel like you are so empathic with all your subject matter. And I'm, and I, I and I wonder, is that something that sort of came naturally to you or whether that was as a result of just something about you growing up in the way that you did? Well, first of all, I have to tell you, I, I was born in Electra, Texas, a little town, but I grew up in Austin. Austin, So okay. it was a little bigger. And my mother raised me. My parents divorced when I was six months old. And so I was raised by my mother, who was a scientist and a rather eccentric <laughs> person, but really smart and lovely and strict uh, in so many ways. But I think growing up alone as an only child um, sometimes helps you to develop kind of a larger imagination. Maybe not. I don't know. In my case, it did because I just, um, I think largely because my mother was very interested in my really understanding the world uh, from the very smallest things, having been a scientist, mm -hmm. to the very large things. And she wanted me to be curious about the world. Um, she ran away from home she, when she was 17. After graduating from high school, her parents didn't want her to get a, a higher education. 
So she left. Wow. And she worked her way through school. And she was in the Signal Corps during World War II and the Army. Anyway, she was very much a self-made woman. And I think she was always determined that I would be as well. And I think I'm really lucky for that uh, because she never forced me into thinking, oh, uh, in any particularly traditional ways. Like I didn't have to think one day I'll grow up and I'll get married and I'll have a family and, you know, it'll be fine if I do and it's fine if I don't. But I think it's so interesting that you ask me this question about uh, empathy. And I actually think it's a great question. No one has ever asked me this. I sort of suffer from it, to be frank. I don't know if it comes from my mother, but when I say I suffer from it, I just have this great sense of empathy for everything around me. Mm. <laughs> uh, and I think it's because I'm really curious about things, but I, but I can look at something and just watch it. Like sometimes I'll, I just sit on the street and watch people because I like to watch people. Um, and if you watch them long enough, they'll tell you everything about themselves if you're interested, you know, and curious enough. But sometimes I see people in situations that are really dreadful and I, it hurts me. It hurts my heart to see it. I think tend to put myself in their place and, and try to see the world from their eyes. And I, I do think because one photographs people so much and quite often in these more dire situations, it's really an important thing to have. Uh, but sometimes I have to admit it hurts my heart a lot and I suffer from it. But I'm not saying that I would do away with it. Right. I just think it makes me more sensitive uh, to as sensitive as we can be without actually being in somebody else's shoes. And to be honest, those people are usually the more interesting people to me anyway. Yeah. Did you find that you had to sort of build up your calluses in, 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 a matter of, in a matter of speech to be able to photograph things that viscerally were feeling? Um, you know, you were feeling that, that empathy, feeling that pain inside your own heart. But did you find when you were first starting that you really had to sort of condition yourself to be able to make the photographs or was or was that issue or not i try not to condition myself because then i feel like we miss some very subtle things that help us to understand somebody or a situation an issue that we're photographing i i think there's a bit of a price to pay mm -hmm. of course there are certain situations in which you do have to condition yourself not to be so overcome by emotion or overcome by something that you can't do it, that you, you don't allow yourself to cross certain lines, and that's not good either. So certainly in some situations, I, I have conditioned myself. For example, I'm working on a story right now on face transplants for National Geographic magazine, and I've been photographing this young woman who accidentally shot her face off. She's an amazing young woman. I've uh, at first struggled with the story because she was very beautiful and the situation under which she did this was unfortunate. But I think if I don't put myself in her shoes, I can't possibly understand what her life is like because otherwise I'm just looking at her and showing what she does, but I'm not showing who she is. And so I think the challenge for us is always to show who people are and what they do, okay, is important. That's a frame or a framework in which you you can 
sort of understand them. But if you if you only look at what they do and not who they are, I uh, don't think you get to who they are, yeah. you know. And that's the whole point. Is but yes, sometimes I have to say, okay, I have to put on the steel glasses right, right. now and not be overcome with the tragedy of this or the danger of it sometimes. I like asking this question, especially of, of photojournalists, just because, you know, this this idea of objectivity, which you've spoken about very eloquently in, in, the, in past interviews. And I think that it's, it's having a sort of an understanding of being relatively objective, because I, I think that there's, that's unattainable to be completely objective, but also being able to recognize your own feelings, your own humanity when you're witnessing something, and yet having a job in which you have to tell a story and have to be fair to the person's experience, despite the fact that you are an outsider. Yes. Well, I do think it's impossible to be objective, and I it's kind of funny <laughs> in journalism, especially when people talk about objectivity. I think for a photographer, being too objective is the kiss of death, but it depends. Like having worked as a director of photography at a large newspaper where we're expected to be objective, I think the photographers often didn't feel that they could go the extra mile. Mm-hmm because they had to be objective. And so I always encouraged them to go to the extra mile and let me worry about whether I thought they crossed the line or not. Uh, but that that's always going to make a more powerful photograph and that brings attention to people or to an issue and that's the point of doing it, right? But I, I think even in, uh, in journalism, the editor who decides what stories are going on the front page, that's an objective decision. I mean, it's not an objective decision. It's impossible to be objective. I mean, let's say, okay, the Washington Post and the New York Times decide every day to put a Donald Trump story on the front page. Mm -hmm. All right. Even if he's not said anything. So I think sometimes they've taken on a crusade, so to speak, which I applaud. I just believe that we make so many decisions that it's, that aren't objective. And we like to say that we're objective, but I think for photographers, I think we can be objective to a point because many times uh, if you just get out of the way of a story or you get out of the way of somebody and let them tell the story, then you've produced something very profound. Mm -hmm. So I'm not a big fan of saying, oh, we should be objective unless there's something that really requires that. But if you just stand back and let people be in your frame – and don't interfere too much, they'll really do all the work for you, yeah. I, I think, quite often. I'm, I'm fond of saying that uh, I'm just the transportation for the camera. You know, I carry my camera around, and it tells me when to stop, and it takes the picture. Oh, and, <laughs> and I like that idea uh, because my camera is sort of my little a buddy when I'm working because I work alone most of the time. I just love that idea that I'm just the transportation for it. And it does really all the work. But I think if you're telling people stories, you have to first learn them. For example, I go, I do a lot of research. If I'm doing something, I try to do a lot of research. I read articles. I look at who's done work there before. But I look at the culture. I read the literature. I listen to the music. All of those things. What do people wear? You know, 
all of these things, their history. And then I go into a situation like a baby, like I don't know anything. And I'm going to learn at the knee of that person if they'll be willing to share their story. Hmm. And that's how I like to approach it. So I like to go with some information, but then the real stuff is there in the daily life and the happening of it. One of your first jobs was at the uh, Galveston Daily News. And I I (laughs) love the story about how you got that job. Would would you share that with us? I love that story. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'd heard there was an opening for a photographer reporter. And it was a little paper. Galveston's a little town. So I went in for an interview. And the managing editor was an older white gentleman. And so he said, well, you know, we're, we already have two men who have applied for this job and they have experience. And uh, the job is a nighttime job. So we're just really not interested in hiring a woman because you have to drive to all these little towns around Galveston to collect the news. And, you know, we just would feel terrible if something happened to you, if your car broke down on the highway or, you know, any of those things. So we're really not going to hire a woman. Uh, So I said, look, I understand your concerns, but just give me 24 hours, all right? Just promise me you won't do anything for 24 hours. And he looked at me in the most puzzled way, and he said, okay, well, I'm not planning to. And I said, okay, I'll be back here at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. So I went out, and I had never been to Galveston, and I thought, I have to find a story to do Mm. and show this man that I can do this job. And uh, so luckily, there was still a, a fairly vibrant little downtown area, and I went to the coffee shop where everybody gathers, and I just started talking to people and asking them, what's the story here? What's the, like, what's going on here? What's really got people talking? And there's a medical school at, in Galveston, and they had this beautiful oval wooden surgical theater from many, 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 you know, years ago, from the turn of the century. And there was a big um, push to tear it down, to build new buildings. And the townsfolk and many of the teachers at the medical school were very much against tearing it down. It was history, you know. And so I started uh, interviewing people, townsfolk, and then I went over to the campus and I photographed this. It was so beautiful, this beautiful old theater that's like an amphitheater where the surgery would be in the middle, but there were all of these, you know, sort of seats kind of going up. The sun was pouring in and it was gorgeous. And I interviewed students and doctors and teachers and the townspeople. And then I went home. I was staying with a friend who had a dark room. I processed the film. I made prints. I wrote a story. I didn't sleep all night. And I went and I was there at nine o'clock in the morning. And I laid the story down and about 12 pictures. And he read the story. The managing editor read the story. And he looked at the pictures. And he looked up at me. And he said, you have the job. He said, neither of those men would have gone to that trouble. So that's how I got the job. I wasn't going to take no for an answer. (laughs) But I think sometimes you just have to say, never say die. You just never say die. And you, you go to the lengths that it might take, of course, within a certain, well, there are certain things one won't do, but, uh, or should not do. But sometimes if you're just, what is the word? It's not ambitious that I'm looking for, but if you just have faith that you have to try, you Mm -hmm. know, What's the worst thing that anybody can do is say no. So I got that job and I did it for about a year until I couldn't stand being in that small town anymore. But, uh, and then I went to New York to seek my fortune. But that was a great job to have. I got to report. I wish I'd been kind of smarter. I was so young still. So I would go to a lot of things like doctors 
wives would have tea parties and things like that. And I wish I had understood sometimes a little bit more about what went on in a small town. And, you know, it's really was actually a very interesting place, but was too much everybody knowing your business. So uh. anyway, but uh, I, I encourage people to try to prove themselves to people. And sometimes people are going to kick you in the teeth. And or sometimes people will say no. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people will say, you know what, I'll, I'll give you a chance. Yes, I'll give you a chance. Yeah, you you sometimes make your fortune that way, I suppose. Well, moving to New York was a good move for you because there you started, I think, in 1973, you started working for AP, the wire service. Yes. And, you know, the world is very different now. But, you know, back then, um, the wire services were where a lot of photographers cut their teeth. Uh, it was incredibly uh, demanding work. Um, tell me about why that work, uh, especially during that time in in New York, because New York was a very interesting place in the 70s. Um, oh, it was so interesting. So tell me about how, why that was so important towards your development as a photographer. Well, from the time I was 14, I had wanted to live in New York City. So I knew I would live there one day. So I went to seek my fortune. And I had a friend who was a picture editor at Associated Press. And at the time, they had no women picture editors. And they were under pressure to find one. But they kept saying, well, we can't find somebody who has the credentials. And also, it was a rather tough newsroom uh, because most of the men were older. You know, that's when you could smoke in the office and they all would have a bottle of liquor in the bottom <laughs> drawer. <laughs> like but they were tough, you know, they were t- kind of tough guys. So, but I, I wanted a job as a picture editor. And, um, and so I went in and I did the interview and they really liked me, uh, but they didn't have an opening. So they said, okay, the next opening will be yours. And happily, uh, in about three months time, somebody quit. And in the meantime, I worked in a furniture store. I started working there and I loved it. I loved being a picture editor because I love looking at pictures and I love looking at other people's pictures. I'm so enthralled by this idea that different people can look through this little frame and see something different. Every person sees something different or sees in a different way. And even to this day, I am so thrilled about this that it's almost silly but I, I get great joy out of it and pleasure. It's so exciting to me. And I loved looking at, at film. This is when we would, we would have to edit negative film, which is not easy, honey. Yeah. <laughs> Color negative and black and white negative to edit that and choose a frame and get it printed really fast to put on the wires, especially breaking news. But there, it was really a great experience because when you were an editor, you weren't just looking at film and editing, you were typing captions. You were working the network, which is the person who sends all the pictures out, and you get to sort of decide what the lineup is. And so, you you know, I was an assignment editor. I ended up being a supervisor, which is a lot like being the captain of a spaceship, you know, the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got a lot of different experience. I was such a great caption writer that they sent me to three Olympic Games and two political conventions. And from that day on, I, I'm a real bitch, actually, about captions. <laughs> I mean, captions can sell a mediocre picture. A great caption can sell a mediocre picture. And a great caption on a great photo can really end up turning into a larger, larger story. Well, so, well, let, let's talk about that, because that's something I've never talked to someone about 
uh, with a photojournalist about is is what makes a good a good caption. Oh, this is such a great question to ask me. <laughs> Here it is. Here's the secret, kids. Okay, in the first sentence, it's who, what, why, when, and where. So who's in the picture? What's going on? What is the reason why? Why is this happening? When is it? That is, what day of the week? What is the date and the year? Who, what, why, when, and where? And where are you? That's the first critical information. And the second and third sentence, if you want a third sentence, can be about what the reason is, you know, or just more information, something about the person or something about the issue that the photograph shows. And it can really sell a picture. And I think it really came in handy, that experience and learning that uh, for me after I left the AP in my freelance career, uh, especially it's really made a difference. And I try to tell this to people, it really makes a big difference in how you are perceived uh, in the archiving of your work, in the publication of your work. And historically speaking, it's important. I'm very popular at National Geographic magazine when I do a story because my captions are almost little separate stories. And people really appreciate that because they get sometimes captions just say, uh, the jungle. So, <laughs> okay, there's a lot of jungles. But at any rate, um, not quite that bad. I'll tell you a quick story. I, for a, a few years, I did fashion in New York, as well as my reportage and documentary work. And I was really lucky. I got to work for this very beautiful magazine called Connoisseur. And I would make up little plays, and the, the models would act them out. And so the fashion was sort of incidental. But I started out doing that because I would photograph the high fashion shows, the haute couture shows in New York backstage. Now, everybody does that now. But when I was doing it, uh, very few people stayed backstage for the whole show. But that was so interesting. So I would wait at the end of a runway. And when a model would come off the runway, she would run through a kitchen where because they were held at hotels. So sometimes they would run through this kitchen where chefs were cooking in these ball gowns, you know, and then down this back hallway where uh, they were throwing all their clothes off so that by the time they got back to the dressing room, they could slip on the next thing. So someone would be running behind them, picking up the jewelry and the clothes and everything. It was crazy. So when I uh, showed this work to the editor of the magazine, he said, oh, I love this. We're going to give you this assignment to do it. And they hired a very, very famous, important fashion writer to write the story. And so when I sat down to write the captions, I wanted to make them very giddy, very, oh, darling, you know, like mm-hmm. you were there backstage hearing all of this, oh, you know, putting you there. And so I did that. And the editor was so excited because the woman who wrote the story wrote the most boring story. So they cobbled my captions together and they wrote oh. a little sidebar. And it was very gossipy, very, oh, darling, look at Iman, you know, that sort of very gay and giddy and exciting. And on the basis of that, that magazine sent me to Japan for one month to do a story, writing it and photographing it on Japanese style. So you see what a great caption can do for you. That's amazing. (laughs) I'm telling you, people don't really understand how that's really part of the picture. And also, there's hardly anything more powerful than words and pictures together. So when you write a great caption for your pictures. It's like the skeleton inside your body. It supports it, you know, and it can support it in the 
most powerful way. And you can really educate people about things. So write good captions. Well, you got to do a, a photograph a lot of stuff um, while you were in New York. You got to photograph Fidel Castro, you know, spent a week with Richard Avedon, you know, just uh, things I could probably talk to you exclusively for hours. But I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, did you have a particular moment in your career or an, an assignment where you felt like it really was sort of the game changer for you in terms of not only how you photographed, but how you were perceived as a as a photographer? I, I guess it's really when I started working in Haiti. I, I did work a lot in Cuba between 82 and 85. I was trying to learn how to do a long-term project. And uh, I had covered a war in Africa for two years before that. But I came back with these pictures on a war that nobody cared about. And it was over. And so that's not really a portfolio. And I'm not, I didn't want to be a war photographer. Uh, but I thought the social story behind the war was very interesting because it was a guerrilla war and against a white people ruling over a black country. But when I went to Cuba between 82 and 85, a lot of it was on my own dime and own time. Uh, but I was learning there. And I really had this great opportunity, thanks to Jim Colton, who was the foreign picture editor at Newsweek at the time, who gave me that Castro assignment to go spend the time with Castro. But it's only because for three or four years I would go and come back and show him my work. I sort of earned that. But I think it was really in Haiti uh, when I started working there because I, I hate to say this, but this is how the world does work. And that is that um, I started winning awards for my work. The awards sort of put you on the map. And, uh, and then I started receiving grants. I would apply for grants. And somehow those awards give you credentials. And I hate that, that it's true, because I think the picture is the same the day before you win an award for it and the day after. But what it does is it shines a spotlight on your work and on what's in the picture. I like to think it's not just, oh, here's a great picture. I just, we're, we're so unimportant in the whole doing of it. It's really about the people in our pictures. I mean, we're nothing without them, and they are the ones who should inspire us and who we should admire, mm -hmm. not the photographer, but that's just my personal feeling. That's really when my career changed, and it was on one picture from Haiti that won World Press, a World Press Award, and it's a picture of a, uh, a little boy trying to steal some food beneath a shuttered door in Haiti at a food warehouse uh, and the soldier is coming in from the side with a baton that's he's coming in so fast it's curved and there's another soldier coming in and that picture is really about Haiti it's about who's in power and it's about poverty and it it just changed my life sort of overnight almost so more doors were open to me and there were more opportunities but I I I I never forget that. Yeah. I really appreciate it, and I never forget it. Um, but it's not to say I hadn't worked really hard before then to get to be a better photographer, to learn, um, and not to get discouraged when things were hard. I mean, I, I did a stint in New York when I came back from Africa as a paparazzi, a paparazza. Oh, really? And I worked, my, my work day started at midnight and ended at six, and I would go home every day and cry. Uh, and I thought, if this is what I have to do to be a photographer, I won't do this. 
I just needed to make some money when I came back from Africa. And so for three months I did it. And then I, I saved money and then I started really trying to do projects. But I'll, I, I have to say, uh, that was a bad period. Uh. But I got through it. A lot of crying. <laughs> Every day going home and saying, oh, I can't believe I'm doing this. Chasing people. Anyway. With most viewers checking out websites on their tablets or smartphones, your website or blog is way behind the times if it's only been optimized for a computer screen. There's no faster way to lose a potential client or fan than when your website looks terrible on a small screen. Squarespace's new feature, Accelerated Mobile Pages, allows you to create mobile-optimized blog content. With AMP activated, your blog posts are stripped of heavier desktop-only content, allowing posts to load instantly on any mobile device. AMP pages load an average of four times faster and use 10 times less data than a non-AMP page. Combine that with Squarespace's beautiful and easy-to-customize templates, and you have an amazing tool for sharing your work and products with the world. You should really check it out. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. I think something that I, I think a lot of people who are creative, who are artists, not just photographers, that there's there's something inside them that tells them that this is what you should be doing. And in mo moments like that, like your stint as a paparazzo, when you're doing something that you know you're not meant to do, you so know it. And it is viscerally painful when you're in the midst of it. And it's likely that that's not the only time in your life when that happens. So what, what gets you through that? Because I think a lot of people give up you know when they're when they're faced with a sense of hopelessness in terms of i don't know how this is going to work out i don't know how i'm going to see myself through this time to do what i want to do when it seems like every obstacle is sort of insurmountable and i'm you know and considering the work that you do i'm sure that you're faced with moments like that that dark moment of the soul where you feel like everything is going to fall apart this project is not going to work i'm not going to be able to get get the photographs so what sees you through moments like that that you continue to push through until something something happens? I probably got this from my mother, but I just never say die. But I think um, partly you have to have faith in yourself and you have to have goals uh, along the way. Like you, you always are going to have this big goal, right? But there's many little goals to achieve on the way. I think if you can set up goals, and sometimes it's just, okay, my goal today is to get through the day. <laughs> if I can get through the day today, I know I'll be fine tomorrow. So I think setting goals and having dreams uh, and being in awe of the world and not let it smash you down, but just realizing that there's so many possibilities and that maybe you're, maybe that route isn't the right one so you have to find the right one that's you and i think trying to hold on to who you are too is really really important mm. 
because if we forget who we are, then we, it's very easy to get discouraged and get lost. So I, I think having a real sense of who you are and what you want to represent is very important. But again, just going back to, I am in awe of the world. And right now I'm really suffering a lot because of all of the things, as everybody is, you know, because of all of the things that are going on in this country uh, and in the world. I, I, I'm, I'm very unhappy about it and very sad. And I, I think I've probably come, become a more cynical person, but from day to day, I'm hugely optimistic. I just had this sense of what I wanted to do and I set goals, and I just kept going. But I think the thing that really kept me going, and I referred to it earlier, is the people that I photographed. And I, I tend to photograph people who are having a harder time in this world because they're the people who are the most interesting to me. Although I, I've tried photographing you know, wealth and that sort of thing. But I find that the people aren't that interesting and that they don't do so much. This is uh, often what I've heard about my work in Haiti. Well, but you only show the poor people and the suffering and blah, blah, blah. And I say, well, I've gone to photograph the wealthy people and it's just not very interesting. Uh, and it's hard to do too, because they're very, very guarded in Haiti yeah. because they know that, you know, they're very wealthy and they're the ones who could change Haiti and they, they basically don't. But there's a lot of pressure on them as well, but you know. About your work in Haiti, you mm -hmm. said that uh, you don't choose Haiti, Haiti chooses you. Oh, I believe that, <laughs> I what, do believe that. Tell me what that means for you. Haiti is a remarkable country. For me, it's the most remarkable country on earth, clearly, because I still work there. After three decades, I'm still working there. It's magical, it's beautiful, it's powerful. I think of it as a female, and it's the women in Haiti who actually keep, they're the glue of the country and the power of the country. But I think so much has happened there. It's so powerful. It was the first uh, successful slave revolt in the history of the world that ended up establishing the first black republic. It was the second republic established in the world after the United States. I mean, imagine these enslaved Africans who overthrew their very severe French masters. This was unheard of at this time, you know, in a time when the world economy rotated on the backs of slaves. And they were treated in the worst situations, um, in the worst way. If you ever read the history of sugar in the Caribbean, you cannot believe what people would do to each other. So I think that took a lot of power, and it's a real point of pride with Haitians, even till now. But there's something so powerful about that country, and I feel it. When I'm standing on the soil, it comes up through my feet and through my body, and I, I just feel it's so powerful. So I do think Haiti, uh, people go there, and they either have the worst time they've ever had in their lives, uh, and they run screaming for the next plane <laughs> out, or they are so taken by it, as I am, that they have no choice. So I, I guess that's why I say Haiti chooses you, because when she does, you have, no, you have no choice but to be there, to love her, to serve her. Almost, it's almost like being a serviteur in, mm -hmm. uh, in Haitian voodoo. You're a serviteur. You, you serve the, the voodoo spirit that you worship. Uh, <laughs> if she loves you, she will wring your heart out on a daily uh, basis, and she will... She will tear you up and spit you out and 
but she'll then she'll caress you and kind of seduce you. And so she's a very powerful place. I feel like this giant bird flew over Africa and picked up a big chunk of land and flying over the Caribbean just dropped it. Yeah. And it's very much like Africa, even now, in ways that I think are very important and profound. And I love Africa in the same way that I love Haiti, but I love that whole continent. But Haiti is uh, much more manageable, and it's so close. Yeah. That's how I think of it. That she's a character, and she knows how to get what she wants out of you. But what you receive in turn is extraordinary. Yeah. But it must be frustrating and, and especially challenging to be able to tell kind of the stories that you want to tell about Haiti when so much of it is, at least in terms of the uh, the news coverage, revolves around crisis and yes. disaster, like with the earthquake or, you know, with the ouster, the Duvaliers and, all, you know, all that other stuff. It's like all of a sudden Haiti's in, 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 in the news for all the worst reasons and then there's nothing. And yes. as you're saying, you have a really strong connection to the people and and have a probably a, a, a clear understanding, as anyone can possibly can, of what people are trying to make, not only of their lives, but of their country. Yet the the world outside of Haiti has, has little to no interest unless it's spectacular. So it's, so how do you sort of contend with, with that reality when you have such a desire to photograph there and to tell the stories of people that you find remarkable. Well, if you look at journalism in general, it's almost always the case. You know, that saying, if it bleeds, it leads. Mm -hmm. So I think, look at Afghanistan, the only time you ever see reporting, uh, I think there was some some people killed in Pakistan yesterday. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you only hear the worst of, about almost every place, ex unless it's a celebrity news. And even then, people are looking for, you know, bad things. But it was when I, when I first started working in Haiti, I was covering all of these events because the Duvalier regime fell and then suddenly there were elections and there were uh, there was a lot of violence but also great possibilities uh, uh, that didn't turn out in the end but um, it wasn't until at some point I just realized I was only showing the worst thing and that I needed to go when it was quiet and that's when I really discovered the real Haiti and because things were quiet and calm and I could go into the countryside and that's where the real Haiti is and that you don't see that often. And I could really learn about the people, and I learned Creole, and I was going to see voodoo because it's really critical in understanding Haiti and Haitians. So it took me doing that to learn, and then I realized that if I was going to really be fair to Haiti, I had to show those things, and so I had to become the warrior for Haiti. And so I would have to go and show my work and talk about those things and not just show these violent pictures, but try to show the beauty and the, and the mystery and how you could be in the worst slum and a little girl in a white dress would skip through this horrible scene with a new red ribbon in her hair. And that suddenly changed everything. And that it sort of represented this sense of hope. Or you'll be in a slum where people are living in cardboard houses, but they have a few pennies to buy paint, and they'll paint their door red or mm. blue. And that's a sign that, well, we might not have wealth, but we have hope. Or you'll see people come out of those houses 
and their clothes are, they might not be new clothes, but they're pressed and washed and people walk with their heads up high and the women walk like queens with these baskets on their heads and all of these things that you start to see when you're not blinded by, you know, this violence and, and unfortunate circumstances like the earthquake that overwhelm everything else. It's like the wallpaper on a wall. It's there and you don't always see it, mm -hmm. but it makes the room. So it's those smaller things that really make Haiti. Yeah. And that's the real Haiti. And if you don't see those things, then all you're doing is covering the news. And maybe not in a very well, not in a very good way with a complete understanding. During the earthquake, I was there the day after the earthquake. I went for the New York Times and they sent five photographers, st four staffers and myself. And I had a horrible time. I wasn't accomplishing much. I thought that my years of working in Haiti would really inform my work. But I was, I have to say, an emotional wreck because so much of my Haiti that I knew was gone and friends died and I saw enormous suffering. Uh, and I also saw photographers who had never been to Haiti who were just there looking for bang, bang and violence mm -hmm. and it hurt my heart to see this, and uh, and I was very frustrated. And I don't think my work was very good, to be honest. Uh, but I managed to find one thing, finally, that I thought would be important. And I was very frustrated because you couldn't show the extent of the damage. And so I went to the main street downtown, and it was a very important street economically, historically, geographically. It connected the north and the south. Uh, it's where the main economic, most of the stores were there, and there was a lot of culture that was lived on this street. And I did one of those things where you just, you take a picture, and then you move over a few feet, and you take another picture, and on and on and on, one whole side of the street, which was completely devastated. And then I sent 350 <laughs> pictures <laughs> to the New York Times by sat phone, because you couldn't put that yeah. together. It, the file was too big. And they put together the most amazing uh, interactive piece. And I grabbed the writer I was working with, Damien Cape, who's a great writer who loves photographers. And you're so lucky when you work with somebody who loves photographers and respects us and thinks we have great ideas. And he wrote a remarkable story. And so in this interactive piece, you could scroll down the street as though you were walking down the street and you could see the extent of damage and it was amazing. It was an amazing piece. And what I loved about it was that it allowed the diaspora, all of the Haitians who didn't live in Haiti, who had, were trying to get in touch with their loved ones, who had no idea what things were like, it gave them a sense of what things looked like. Mm. And I think that served a very important purpose. Anyway, I kind of got off track. No, no, but, you did um, not get off track at all. But that's, thank you for that. You've, you've photographed so many things, but one of the most personal things you ever photographed was the last uh, year of your mother, who was suffering from dementia or, or, or Alzheimer's. I can only imagine how challenging that must have been in a variety of different ways, not only as a, as a photographer, but as a daughter, as a, as a caretaker. Tell me about that, that time and, and why that, that time with your mother proved to be so special to you. Well, actually, she she suffered memory loss for about an eight or nine year period. <sighs> to be honest, this is I love being able to tell people about this story for many reasons. But I think this is where photography can save us. 
here I am, the, my only family, I'm an only child, just a parent, and watching her on this very melancholic voyage of memory loss was, of course, very difficult. It hurts a lot to see somebody going, and people go through different, what is the word, uh, stages. But I learned so much. You know, I, I mean, the, the thing about it, and I was still having to work, so I, I, I looked at 50 places, five zero places where I might be able to put my mother to be closer to me because she was still in Austin. And I would go home uh, for four years. I went home every month for a week to pay the bills, clean the house, buy food, things like that. So she could stay in her home, but it finally became impossible. And so I brought her here and that's a funny story, but uh, I won't, it's too long, but I found a place after looking at 50 places, and it wasn't a big fancy place or an expensive place, which was lucky for me, uh, but it was a small place, and it was the caregivers that really make a difference, uh, which is really important for people who are looking for some place for their family. It's the caregivers 100%. And I found the right place for her, but it was not without spending a lot of time looking, but I was determined that I was going to ensure that my mother had the best end of life experience I could give her. So I spent a lot of time with her and she went through sometimes very violent stages. Sometimes she was very sexy. Sometimes she would um, be very childlike, but all of these stages passed. Sometimes she would remember me and more and more often she didn't know who I was, but it didn't matter. I mean, that's, I think, what hurts people the most, that and having the same question asked 50 times in a row, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is maddening. But two things I learned, and one is that those stages pass. And if you can just go with the flow and not uh, over-medicate your loved one, I mean, you can change your medication, you can raise it if they're being violent, but then when that passes, you should lower it again, because otherwise they're zombies, and that's no good for anybody. But I also learned that in a way I could be liberated by my mother forgetting me. And uh, because sometimes between parents and children, there are some issues. And I think uh, maybe especially between mothers and daughters, there can be some issues. And my mother was very strict, as I said earlier, and also had large expectations of me. And But she was also generous at the same time. I don't want to make her sound like a bad person. She was an extraordinary person. But we didn't always get along, I guess, because we were a lot alike. So in a way, being forgotten liberated me and I could be somebody else who she liked or who she didn't know who I was, but she liked me. Uh, not that she didn't like me before, but I'm just saying that sometimes these things can be liberating. And that's another way to look at it instead of being hurt by it. And it allowed me to look at her. This was the best part. I was able to look at her and not see my mother anymore, but to see Madge as her own person, a woman who had nothing to do with me. And this was such an extraordinary thing to see who Madge was for the first time in my life, to really not see her through the glasses of the daughter, but to see her as her own woman, and I really lamented that I couldn't have known her in that way. And photography gave me a way to a framework or a way to look at her and to frame all of this sort of voyage that we were on together up until a certain point, in which case she would have to go on without me. Yeah. 
I was with her so much and there's so much downtime. And so I would just photograph her, but also I wanted to make new memories. And I, it was like, I couldn't photograph her enough. It was like kissing somebody. You can't kiss them enough, you know, when you're in love with them or you love them, you just, you can't ever kiss them or hug them enough. Or I suppose if you had children, I don't have children, but I suppose when you have a baby, you just can't, you can never hold that baby enough, you know, because you know that that baby is not going to be a baby forever. This sad disease that we're all so frightened about can also be filled with gifts. Maybe not for the person who's forgetting, but for the caregiver and the person who's being forgotten. There are so many more good things, I think, about it than bad things. It's not that it's not sad, but I just, I feel like I was given this great gift to see my mother as Madge, as her own person. Mm -hmm. I, I can't tell you how huge that was for me. I fell in love with this woman again, and I just, uh, I feel like I was so fortunate. And then to be able to look at her through the camera and see this great beauty and capture these moments was also, uh, look at what I have. I have my mother with me still because I have these pictures of her. So... I think that's maybe the most profound thing about photography is it can be so highly personal and it can save you, you know, from being useless, from being a puddle on the floor, from running away. And a lot of people, you know, put their parents in these places and they never come back. Mm. And uh, that's the saddest thing I can think of. But it, it turned what could have been a very terrible, sad situation. And it was difficult, but it turned it into a more joyful experience uh, for me. Yeah. And I think if I could be more joyful, that was better for my mother as well. And it's a wonderful way to honor your mother, because I know that you share these images and you share these stories when you're teaching and when you're presenting. And it's a wonderful way of of being able to take that gift that your mother in this time provided you yes. and share it, because your mother is so much of who you are. I am my mother's daughter, for yeah, sure. Because <laughs> I know you, you've talked about how difficult it was growing up with her, and you know, and your very strong personalities coming into conflict. And but through all of that, you know, you've turned out to be a remarkable a woman, a remarkable daughter, a remarkable photographer. And a lot of it goes back to what you've shared with us in terms of the relationship that you had with her, and that that you know that these photographs and how you share them really show your gratitude for, so for everything you had. Thank you. And that's very kind of you to say those things. Um, maybe the most important thing I learned was that we have to live in their world. Uh, they can't live in our world anymore. And so we have to live in their world. And sometimes they'll say things and they'll insist on something like, oh, but, you know, the room is red and it's really green. But you just say, yes, it is. And it's such a bright red. Isn't it pretty? Do you like this shade of red? And I guess it's kind of equates back to how I feel about photographing people uh, is that we get to live in their world. And mm. in order to photograph them in the right way, to really get it right, to get their story right, because we're just a conduit, we have to live in their world and understand them from their point of view and not impose this sort of Western point of view, yeah. uh, which doesn't allow us to be accepting or to appreciate some very fine, smaller things that we won't see if we don't open our eyes to their world. I think it's a nice metaphor somehow. Absolutely. 
Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anybody. It can be someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? May I suggest two people? Go ahead. Okay. I, I wish they were women, but, uh, but there's so many wonderful women photographers. Uh, so first of all, so happy for that. The more women, the better. Yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs> we love, I mentor a lot of young women and I love them. But these two guys are so interesting. And one is Philip Toledano. Phil Toledano, he's, he, he has one foot in the art world and one foot in editorial and commercial. He's British. I love his work. When MediaStorm did a piece with me about my mother, Madge, and her memory loss, it's called Rite of Passage. Well, Phil Toledano had been photographing his father, who also suffered from memory loss, and he did a book called Days with My Father. And so MediaStorm did a piece with him, and they premiered them at a movie premiere woof, in Brooklyn. And Phil and I met, and we were like brother and sister immediately. But he's funny. He's very funny and very smart. He's British, I think I said. And his work is fascinating. And so I really like him. I think he's a great interview, and he's just hilarious. Um, and he brings uh, kind of a different point of view to things, and he's very self... You would think he would have a big ego or, let's say, more self-confidence, but he's not. He's very self-deprecating, and it's kind of funny and charming. And the other is somebody I did recently discover uh, because um, he took a workshop with me, and his name is Donato Di Camillo, and he's an American. He lives in, um, I think he lives on Staten Island, and he's fascinating. He's really funny. He's a street photographer. He's doing some really great work, and also some little short videos. He's been photographing and filming this woman who lives on the street who suffers from schizophrenia. And these little short films are really powerful. But Donato has a really interesting story. And he's, he's, a, he's a guy who worked on the other side of the law for a long time. I, I don't want to... He, he worked in the dark world, let's say. Mm. Uh, and he even served a little time. But he is one of the most enthusiastic, amazing, interesting people I have met in a long, long time. This, I mean... This guy could be in films himself. He's so interesting and interesting looking. But he's, he, somebody did a video of him working, and he's so friendly with people, and he's, he's not shy or anything, and he's, he just walks up to people and, and asks if he can photograph them. So he, he's, he photographs on the beach at Coney Island. Uh, he does a lot of street photography. I think he's going to go on and do some other kinds of things. But So he's not been doing it. For that long a period of time, maybe a couple of years, but I think he's another person who photography has saved, mm -hmm. and it gave him a sense of purpose. And I think it's interesting to hear him talk about it. But I just, I, I, I am so excited about his work, and he's such a real person, and he's had real life experience, you know. Well, thank you for that. I look forward to looking at both of their work. Yeah, uh, I, I think they're both really interesting. Well, Maggie, thank you so much for appearing on the show. It was really it's such a pleasure to sit down and talk with you. Well, you asked the best questions, and I really enjoyed it so much as well. And 
uh, thank you so much. I'm very honored that you would want to spend some time with me and hear what I have to say. I, I really enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thanks again to Maggie Stieber for sharing her time and story with The Candid Frame. To see her work, visit her site at maggiesteber.com. And remember that you can and do play a big role in introducing others to the work that we do here at TCF. Take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. Thanks to John Clark from Canada for his five-star review. You can also support the show by making a regular monthly contribution through Patreon. You can contribute amounts of $2, $5, $10 or more or anything in between on a monthly basis and help make a big difference to the work that we're doing here at The Candid Frame. Visit patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or you'll find a link in the show notes and The Candid Frame website. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Our senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.